Let's pray. Jesus, this week, as we enter into a heaviness, remembering your suffering and death, we know that right now, many of us feel that suffering and grief that you and those closest to you experienced. We are grieving the death of loved ones. We are grieving and confused at dramatic changes in our lives. We had different expectations for how the spring would be for us, and we feel a heaviness. Maybe our souls are unsettled. We are tired, and we are afraid. This morning and throughout our week, would you please meet us as we are? And as you know, suffering and death help to carry the load with us, we pray. And as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. And when there are things that I say that aren't helpful, let us simply forget them. We pray these things in your name, the name of our God, our creator, redeemer, and spirit among us. Amen. Well, welcome all to Pandemic Palm Sunday. (laughs) This isn't how we expected it to be, is it? We didn't imagine that I would be here on Facebook Live with palms behind me instead of us all processing into the church waving palms. We didn't expect to be away from each other for so long, away from this group that we love so much. And I imagine many of you are feeling grief right now, too, with the things being so different than you expected. Grief over school changing and having your senior year in high school away from friends. Grief and loneliness as you live alone. Grief to be missing events. Grief and fear over people you know who are sick. Grief over losing dear ones, especially recently losing Jim Sundholm, a pastor and mentor and friend and brother of so many. Things in our lives have changed rapidly, and they continue to, and we're all rolling with the punches as best we can, but things are still very difficult. We are still in pain. We all expected things to be different. And I think while this time is so difficult for us, while we are in grief and as things are in upheaval, we are all going through our first pandemic after all, we all deserve some grace, we also can find some friends in the middle of it all in our text, I think. Perhaps we aren't the only ones to have experienced upheaval and confusion and have expectations that didn't pan out as we hoped. Perhaps we can sit for a bit together with what folks in our text expected and how they dealt with dashed expectations and plans. Maybe we can learn from them in their griefs. We start our gospel reading today in Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, and it reads like this. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So they went away, and they found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Then he returned to Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And then in chapter 14, 
While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard. And she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, Why was the perfume wasted in this way? For this could have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me, for you will always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly I tell you, whatever the good news, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. These stories are familiar to many of us, I think. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey and people are waving palm branches, welcoming him in. And a woman at a dinner pours expensive perfume on Jesus. We've maybe heard these stories before. So where are the expectations here? How can these people be our friends? Where are the griefs? To know a bit what is happening to these people, we have to look at the context a bit. So let me set the stage. Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey through crowds of people because people had seen things like this before. This perhaps wasn't the first procession. The people waving palm branches, the Jews, they had been through a lot. The Romans were in power over them and the Romans hated the Jews. For a Roman soldier, being placed in Galilee was like being placed in a remote village full of people they thought were backward and old-fashioned. It was a low post to receive as a soldier and the Romans treated those in Galilee accordingly. So these people who go to get a donkey for Jesus, these people who spread out their cloaks on the road and who tore off these branches to wave in honor, these people, they were ready for a change. They had seen other Jewish men, zealots they were called, rise up in bloody revolution against Rome. Of course, those revolutionaries were killed, but many of these people kept up hope that one day someone would come to free them from oppression in Rome. They expected to one day fight for their freedom. They dreamed of the glory and the rest and the safety that they would receive with such a win. And while perhaps their ways of going about it were violent, their desire to be free was natural. And when Jesus comes in on that donkey, they thought perhaps this was it. They shouted, Hosanna, which sometimes we sing thinking it means praise God or something, but in reality it means save us. And these people in the streets call for change. They ask Jesus to save them. And they exalt him like the future king over their oppressors that they expected he would be. All of this would have been a slap in the face to the Roman emperor. Their entry into Jerusalem, waving palms and shouting and laying down their coats on the road. This was an act of protest against Rome. They righteously protested their oppression. And they expected Jesus to enter into Jerusalem as a military leader, maybe like some before, giving speeches on picking up weapons weapons and moving towards a violent revolution. And instead, Jesus enters the city. He looks around, and when he sees that it's dark, he turns around, and he goes to a friend's house to sleep for the night. It's so anticlimactic. If Jesus is leading a campaign here, he isn't doing a great job. There aren't any speeches, no calls for action, nothing. The people are dreaming of righting wrongs, overthrowing the empire, getting safety and wellness for their people. Finally, 
and he calls it a night and goes to bed. How disappointing! How confusing and painful it must have felt for those whose expectations were dashed. There were all sorts of expectations at the dinner party that Jesus attends at Simon's house later, too. Maybe we all have a box that we put Jesus in. (laughs) Jesus is enjoying a regular meal with a few friends when a woman runs into the room. Women didn't usually dine with men at that time, so this is a surprise. A woman would only enter a meal like this to serve at it, but instead of bringing in bread or pouring the wine, she bursts into the room, and I imagine the servants are chasing after her, trying to hold her back, and next she smashes the seal of a beautiful jar on the ground and pours some expensive oil out on Jesus' head. And this seems pretty weird to our modern ears, And it might only seem a little less so to the dinner guests that evening. This was not normal. Though anointing an honor guest was customary, this should have been done by the host or by a servant and done when the guest arrived. And here is where the men at the table expect something of Jesus. They expect that he would rebuke this woman for her disregard for custom and tradition, for her scandalous display and embarrassing how she has embarrassed all of them. They whisper among themselves about the wastefulness of this woman's act, and they rebuke her. Shouldn't this have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor, they ask? They said this expecting that Jesus would respond in kind. After all, giving to the poor was part of the Passover feast tradition. After all, caring for the poor was certainly something Jesus was all about. Over and over, Jesus' teachings and actions displayed a care for the poor and a desire for justice and mercy for the poor. It seemed to be all the man talked about sometimes. These men at the table rebuked this woman, expecting to receive commendation from Jesus and to look righteous and good in Jesus' eyes. They expected this because Jesus had taught them that care for the poor was good. Perhaps they expected that Jesus would recognize their growth and learning. But again, Jesus does what is unexpected. He listens to their words, true, of course, But he defends her. He doesn't correct this woman's theology, her practice, or tell her to go somewhere else where she isn't embarrassing anyone. He defends her, the woman who is now standing there, head hanging, cheeks burning with embarrassment, hands covered in perfume. He defends her. She is awkward and perhaps unthinking, but Jesus claims her and her actions. He says that she does what is right. Jesus never seems to do what people think he will. The crowds who shouted, Hosanna, save us, on the way to the city, and the dinner guests at Simon's party all had preconceived notions of who Jesus was and what he was there to do. And those are even good expectations. They longed for things to be different, for there to be social change where they and their families could be well and live without the violence of Rome. They expected Jesus to tell this woman to do what was right, to spend that lavish gift on the poor. But they also expected Jesus to be something that he wasn't. They wanted him to be a military leader, to lead them in violence against Rome. They wanted Jesus to follow all their traditions, to condemn who they condemned, to say that they were doing it all right. These people put Jesus in a box, and they defined for themselves what it meant to follow Jesus. And classic Jesus, he does something weird, and in the middle of expectations, chaos, upheaval, and confusion, he points to someone loving another person. He focuses in on what we can do when so much is ripped away. 
He points to this woman who anoints him with perfume. I think this woman who has followed him, loves him, her friend, and her actions are simply an overflow of that. In the middle of confusion and upheaval, as her people suffer and ache, as the poor are still present, she does something extravagant and wild. She doesn't seem to think about how she will be received. She just does it. Though the story is told wherever the gospel is preached, her name is never mentioned. Perhaps if there are kids listening to this, you can choose her name and tell it to your parents. You can comment on the live Facebook feed, perhaps, if you'd like. This woman even makes a bit of a fool of herself. She breaks all sorts of social customs, and that oil that she pours on Jesus, our text says that it would have been worth a year's wages. This was maybe a family heirloom, something that she or her family could use to sell when times got rough. This was like her entire savings account, and she smashes it and wastes it all on Jesus. Seems ridiculous, but Jesus sees it for all that it is. She wastes all that she has to honor him because she loves him. She loves extravagantly. She pours out her prized family heirloom and possession on Jesus, who in a few days also will pour himself out in love for her and all people. Her act is a picture, plain as day, of Jesus' own sacrifice. It's foreshadowing. And Jesus also reframes himself in her act. Though he is about caring for the poor, he doesn't like it when these dinner guests ridicule her to make themselves look better. Though he is for freeing the captives and getting rid of oppression, perhaps, perhaps he wished to have his people free from Rome who did violence against them. He isn't about violence and won't lead a violent revolution. And while we're talking about dashing people's expectations, Jesus speaks on his burial here. He says that she has anointed him for his burial and lets people know that he is going to be arrested and will experience brutality, be tortured and killed through a shameful form of execution only reserved for the worst kinds of criminals. The crowds at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the men at the dinner certainly didn't hope for or expect that. Why should they? Because of timing later on in the week, because he dies right before the Sabbath, his body won't be cared for and embalmed after his death. And this woman's act cares for him and ministers to him. It prepares his body for death. And in her love for him, she enters in solidarity into that fearful space of death and burial with him. And in praising this woman, Jesus asks his disciples, he asks us to do the same. We who love Jesus, we are called to focus on Jesus and on love even in strange times. And we too are asked asked to enter with this woman into Jesus' death and burial in solidarity with him. It will look different than we expect. Sometimes awful things happen. And Jesus doesn't cause our pain, doesn't create our despair and suffering in order to look good as our God and make beauty from it. For what would that say about the character of God? That would be mean. That would be a divine narcissist using us to lift himself up. But God does make beauty out of awful things that grieve him too. In our world where sometimes things just don't make sense, where things are wild and confusing, where there are pandemics and good people suffer and die, Jesus loves us still. Jesus still works to make right. As my friend Pastor Judy Peterson says, maybe the bad has nothing to do with Jesus. But maybe the redemption does, though.
Jesus also doesn't fix it all. The people are still oppressed by Rome. The poor are still poor. And this all doesn't make any sense, but maybe there is a way to see Jesus right now, present with us in the wreckage of our expectations and our dashed hopes and dreams. Maybe like this woman does. And I think the way that we see Jesus now in this, on this pandemic Palm Sunday isn't through getting answers to all of our questions, and we have many. There aren't any, really. For what kind of God would we be worshiping if we could figure God all out? But we do know that God is with us. And we do know what God does for us, pours out his life on the cross for us out of extravagant love, and calls us to do the same with one another, as you all are doing so beautifully. Jesus asks us to waste our whole lives on him. He asks us to follow him to the cross and asks us to lavish love all around us all along the way. And let me be clear about something. Wasting our lives on Jesus and following Jesus to the cross and to the grave is not about purposefully hurting ourselves or thinking that God wants us to suffer. No, that is not it. God deeply loves and wants us to thrive. This is why he died for us. And the kingdom of God is about thriving for all people, and we are a part of that all people. Instead of hatred, self-hatred, taking up our crosses and following Jesus— Loving even when it hurts. That, instead of self-hatred, taking up our crosses and following Jesus means loving even when it hurts. Trusting when it seems there is no way out. Asking for help when we cannot. And then asking Jesus to show us the way to beauty even out of ashes. Out of our dashed hopes. Out of our wounds. And to teach us the art of living new life out of suffering and death. Doesn't feel ideal or safe or like a good idea. And we are in the middle of, a wi- of wild things, and there are so few answers, but we love Jesus, and so we go with all of ourselves, ready to waste it all on him, just like this woman with the perfume. Many years ago, <clears throat> during seminary, I got to take a joint class between North Park Seminary and the Theological School of the Ubangi region in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Ten of us North Park students and professors flew to Congo in the middle of May to join our brothers and sisters in ministry there in a cross-cultural class on the topics of forgiveness and reconciliation. Our siblings in faith in Congo chose the topic as they wished to grow in these areas after the war there a few years ago, and they said that we must need to learn about reconciliation too with the many instances of police brutality in our country. And so many of us from the United States, we prepared to travel to Congo, and we tried to learn some French in preparation, but when we got there, most of our host families spoke Lingala instead of French, which caused all of us, hosts and North Park students alike, to be very confused. Most of our communication happened through charades, but despite despite our lack of language, I was so amazed at how close my host family and I could get without even a basic understanding of each other's languages. We became family over the weeks that we were together. I still write them letters. However, language problems still persisted. Over one of the weekends that we didn't have class, a few of us traveled to a town a few miles away. We all hopped in the truck, some inside, some in the back, and we began the five-hour journey from the town of Gemina to the town of Karawa on the red road surrounded with jungle green stretching to the skies on either side. And as we drove... 
it began to rain. And this this wasn't a Seattle kind of rain. It wasn't drizzling. It wasn't misting. This, this was a torrential downpour kind of rain. The students and professors in the back of the truck tried to hide under the tarp, but there was no way to avoid getting completely soaked. The already bumpy road shifted in the rain, and the water molded that clay dirt to form new pathways. And in coming around a bend in the road, we saw a river and that bridge and a bridge that had seen better days. There was a whole crowd of people with tools. They were surrounding the bridge, some in the water, some in the land, all working to right the bridge. But in the moment, in the wild rain, the bridge was listing to the side. It looked as if a car would slide off the bridge into the river if any crossing was attempted. But with us, with us in the truck was a missionary named Keith Gustafson. Maybe some of you know him. He now calls the Pacific Northwest his home. He got out of the truck, and he went to talk with the people working to fix the bridge. They talked together in Lingala, and the rest of us North Park students sat in the truck and came to the consensus in English that we probably would be turning round and not attempting to cross the bridge. Not this day. But much to our surprise, Keith waved goodbye to the men he was speaking with, hopped in the truck, and he stepped on the gas! Those of us in the truck hadn't understood the conversation due to our lack in being able to speak the language, and we looked at him in amazement, and then looked at the quickly approaching bridge in terror. As we got to the bridge, and as we held our breath, Keith eased the truck over the side of the bridge, highest in the air, and he gently pushed the truck over the slippery wooden planks to safety on the other side of the river. And we breathed a sigh of relief. As we waved goodbye through the rain to the repairers of the bridge who were cheering at Keith's driving skills, Keith quietly said to us, That man I spoke to back there before the bridge, I know him. I can trust him. He is the engineer. And because my fellow English speakers and I didn't know the language, because we saw the bridge slanted over the river, we all expected to turn around. Crossing the bridge was terrifying because we didn't know the whole story. The same is true with this whole taking up our crosses and following Jesus thing. Wasting our lives by pouring them out at Jesus' feet, it makes no sense. It's scary. We don't know what's coming, and we have experienced such pain and upheaval. How are we supposed to trust right now in a pandemic? How are we supposed to lavish love on others right now? How are we supposed to know Jesus can indeed make things right? And to top it all off, Jesus is nothing like we expected when he meets us there in our pain. But he is good. It's a bit like the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe when Lucy asks the beavers if Aslan is tame, and the beavers say that Aslan is certainly not tame, but he is good. And our experiences with Jesus teach us the same. The rains have come down, the bridges of our lives are broken, but we know the engineer. We know the engineer can get us through even as we walk over wild waters, even as we take up our crosses. And we can, like the woman who poured out the perfume, like Jesus who poured out his life, like these ones, we can love creatively, extravagantly, wildly in this time of pandemic because we know that the bridge will hold. We know the engineer. And as we waste our lives on Jesus, staying home for the good of our communities, as we work on the front lines in hospitals, as we serve breakfast to homeless neighbors each Saturday, as we read stories to kids over Zoom, share articles and photos that bring us joy, donate to organizations bringing relief to folks without work, as we simply get up and get through the day, 
as we buy food for our families and others, we can remember that Jesus is with us as we cross broken bridges in the rain. Jesus is with us as we move with him through suffering and death. Jesus has gone before through these things. Even if things aren't as expected, Jesus has poured out his life out of love for us creatively, extravagantly. We can be bold with our love for one another and our communities because we know the engineer who can get us through even the most torrential downpours. And this is a torrential one. So let us love extravagantly and like the woman with a year's wages worth of perfume, let us waste our lives on Jesus knowing that while things look different than our expectations, even as we are in the middle of torrential downpours, as we grieve, as we are sad, May we know that resurrection is coming. Amen.